0: Hello and a very warm welcome to the full series of Material Matters with Grant Gibson, that's me. Rather remarkably, we've been going for almost a year now. If you hadn't heard the show before, then the idea is that I speak to a designer, maker, artist or architect about material with which they're intrinsically linked and discover how it's changed their lives and careers. Today I find myself in the East London studio of the extraordinary designer Laura Bethan-Wood. Since graduating from the Royal College of Art a decade ago, Bethan has built a practice that's characterised by material investigation, collaboration and a fascination with colour and pattern. She's worked with the likes of Italian furniture manufacturer Moroso, ceramics company Rosenthal, fashion house Hermes and the champagne brand Perrier-Jouet, as well as the Nilfar Gallery in Milan. She currently has a rug created for C.C. Tapis in the Beazley Designs of the Year at the London Design Museum and has also worked on a rather unusual jukebox of epidemics at the Wellcome Collection's new permanent gallery, Being Human. However, she's arguably best known for her work in laminate marquetry, which kicked off a long-running series of pieces entitled Superfake. Bethan, thank you very much for doing this.
1: No worries.
0: Um, Shall we kick off with the laminate? Sure. This is a uh, podcast about materials. So, what is laminate actually made of?
1: So, laminate is is normally 0.8 of a millimetre thick. If you're lucky, sometimes 1.2. <laughs> and it's, um, it's a mix of paper and resins, really. Um, so I, was, you kind of have these big machines that they're kind of the resin floats along the bottom and then there's a piece of paper, um, that kind of will float in gravity like this hovering and, uh, and then they, they, they kind of get pressed and stuck together. It's a, it's a material that's very much made from uh mass manufacture mm. and comes from, um, large-scale industry and it's it's very connected to being produced in um set time runs of certain patterns that so for me that's what i found so interesting about laminate is it's very connected to uh mass culture and mass mass aesthetic um to do with different periods of time so obviously laminate as a material itself goes in and out of fashion so there'll be Points in time when it will be around a lot more than others, but it's generally managed to kind of hang on in there <laughs> through thick and thin, through uh, you know maximism and minimalism, and uh, so it, that's why it just fascinated me so much.
0: But the connotations around it are generally that it's a cheap, a cheap within material. within the
1: UK, yeah. yes, for sure. <clears throat> um, and I think it, it it's you really have to look at like a lot of materials at certain periods of time in their in their lifespan. They were seen as the most pinnacle, the most elite, the most special, and then they became, you know, cheap. Mm. It, it's like you know, pineapple was the king, and then it became a ring in in a uh, in a uh, can, and was the you know the cheapest date you could put on a on a platter for for your guests. So I think that I also get really fascinated by the the um, the narrative that a material has, and laminates this one that came from this. Kind of revolution of the kitchen and the liberation of of this very female-led domestic space, and um, and was all part of when it, it was all the gadgets and there was all this kind of uh, modernism going on there. And um, so it's very connected to this. And then um, in some ways that then makes it very domestic, which has allowed it to become um, seen as low end because you, yeah. you put it in the in in a space which you treat quite poorly. I, I like that with the marquetry, People often kind of question. They're like, "Oh, is it? Is it very? Uh, how strong is it? Is it going to last?" And I'm like, "How do you treat your kitchen? You know, your, your nan's kitchen top probably not very well. So it's it's pretty stable. Mm. Um, but then it also has this amazing connection with movements like Memphis, and um, you know, it's 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 something that goes through all these different kind of levels of." luxury and non-luxury and i think that's what made me so kind of obsessed with it
0: so what was the process were you looking for a material whose connotations you could transform and change or did you find laminate and go there's a story here i can work with this
1: it it was definitely i think more the the second um of the um, of the two ways i as a platform at the rca we were We were very much focused on the idea of the city and locality and making work in response very particularly um, physically to an area or a place. And uh, I think also I, I, I was spending quite a lot of my time panicking at the RCA, so walking around East London was a lot easier than being in the school at that point. So walking, I started to pick up and photograph a lot more of these kind of public patterns, which was something I'd been interested in. Even back on my foundation, actually, I, I, I photographed what I called public patterns. Um, and laminate was this material that I would come across again and again, especially in East London. Now, sadly, there's not so many of them. They're all kind of dying out. Um, but there was some amazing laundry uh, places that, with the really intense, massive, marbly laminate that I haven't been able to find. Now, it may have changed, but at the time... All of this was no longer being made. Nobody made this kind of scale of marble madness. <laughs> so all these uh, all these laundry mats had this amazing, um, intense like marble laminate. And um, so I just started to become really fascinated with with that as a particular material that I felt I could work with in connection to this interest in the idea of public patterns or the you know patterns that people have a connection to. Um, so I think that's kind of that was how I kind of focused down on laminate being the material that I could kind of access.
0: And then was it was it immediate that you were going to slice it and inlay it into things? Where where did marquetry where was the interest in that particular technique emerge?
1: I think it's it was more because laminate is it it has very set particulars about it. So it is always going to be uh, 0.8 or 1.2 mm. thick because of the way it's produced and it has to be standardized in this way. So there's certain things about its sheetiness that really suits marquetry and then on the other hand um, you can't work with it like you would for example with when you do even wood marquetry or um, the mixed material uh, inlay where you have uh, like a brass uh a wood and and uh, another material because most of the time these are glued and then they're sliced. You either slice them like a stick of rock mm. to create your your leaves, or you glue them and then you can clean back. Whereas laminate, like if you scratch it, that's you know, your are kind of that's your lot. Um, so I think for me it felt that there was a way that I could work with it within the market tree discipline because also of. Uh, Modern cutting techniques like uh, laser, which allowed you to do um, cutting from the top, and there was no um, there was no need for to have multiples of exactly the same uh, shape repeatedly to be able to get the numbers down. That the, like the computer doesn't really care where your vectors are going, right? As long as there's lots of them, and the more of them, it's cheaper. <laughs> it just seemed to be the right. The right way to work with this material because it worked for this material. I mean, it was quite a nightmare to find the right way to cut it successfully because laminate burns and is quite toxic. Yeah. So um, I, I had a wonderful technician at the RCA called Yevichia who um, who enjoyed the the travel into the world of trying to find the best way to cut the laminate and to to pick it out bits bit at a time and all these different kind of techniques to be able to get um my goal which especially for the early first works was really about being able to use every element of the laminate so instead of um cutting in the way that you you see a lot in in industry which is you cut a shape and there's a lot of wastage around Mm. because um because of the some sometimes to do with the techniques that are available at that point and sometimes just because it's easier to not have to be that controlling over your line and i was really um wanting to push it because i if you if you can cut with the exact right system then you can almost use every single bit that you've right. got and because i decided that i wanted to use a mix of um laminates so not necessarily laminates that had already been um glued on a table because then these have a they have a whole other length of um their own issues that you have to deal with to to take them off and they're off that medium and stuff but more to use like back archive laminates and laminates that i was like chasing out the last bit of dead stock of this glitter laminate for for ages kind of trying to hunt down the last sheets so some of them became much more precious than others and that also was a bit the narrative that I was interested in because these sheets when they're in production you know they're kind of uh, they have there's there's thousands of them made because that's the system they're from but the minute they're no longer part of the party it's you're on a ticking clock over what's going to ever be
0: Mm, available
1: available or Mm. be able to be made again because it you know, these are all made from being part of a system that at that point had these pigments as in mass culture of this, this particular color, these glitters with the glitters available at this time. And they all come together to make this shot of this. And um, so by doing this technique where I could literally use every single tiny bit from a piece, it meant that even laminates I only had like an A4 sample sheet of from um, Abbott. And they, they were lovely. To to work with the, the, the
0: Italian, yeah, yeah, I wrote to them About Lamanati.
1: Abbot Laminati, Abbot mm. Laminati. I wrote off to them, kind of going, hello, <laughs> you make the best uh, laminates that I really like, and you've got all the success history. and Can I can I play with you? And they were like, yeah, come 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 and uh, play with us. And then you know, I was like literally deep in the archive in the um, in the London uh, depot and. Bringing home boxes and boxes of all these A4 samples, mm. so it became quite important that I also found a way to be able to work with these smaller sheets in the way to get the most out of the bit that was going to be flat. And um, yeah, so it was it was just a really kind of obsessive <laughs> way of f- making a language that worked for the work for the laminate or work for what I felt created something with the laminate that would connect with people and would um, have enough space within the designs that somebody would see, you know, a fried egg and someone else sees like a sweet and somebody else sees like bacteria because there's, there's different people react to different things, different colors, different combinations slightly differently because it, again, it's that narrative history of what certain combinations of things mean to different people of different ages. And this kind of rock-based um, pattern really allowed me to kind of play around with those kind of things.
0: You talked about uh, finding the Royal College of Art a panicking situation. Was it difficult? I'm intrigued. Uh,
1: it was... It's... So, I think... I just like... I think if you ask a lot of people that go to the RCA, it's not uncommon that a lot of people that are like... that that are now doing amazingly well. Um, all, we all kind of go a little bit uh, crazy at some point at the RCA and you kind of get quite lost. and uh, But that's that was also a lot of the point of it and, and the importance of it being two years and being um, this thing that you kind of got lost to be able to refine what it was that you were going to be able to do or what was important about what you brought to the table versus another designer. Um, and I think also for me, I'd, you know, from about 16, I'd kind of obsessively um, wanted to go to the RCA. I'd watched a BBC documentary on the RCA. In the 1990s, I think it was.
0: Well, yes, I think it was when Ron Arad had just arrived. It had, when and he um, arrived doing the furniture course rather exactly. than the design products that, that subsequently it became.
1: I mean, I watched every week, and every week, which was one was like millinery, one was sculpture. I was like, oh no, that's the one I want to do. You know, I just was quite. Um, it was, it was just very kind of important to me as this thing that I. I knew that that's where I wanted to go. And so when you get there, it's kind of a little bit like, oh, oh no, I mean, what, am I good enough? What am I doing? And, you know, so I think I did for a little while um, in my first year um, find it difficult to know how to make work or I felt very unproductive. I think I actually was being quite productive, but I think, you know, you get very lost in your own head about what you're doing. and um, and uh yeah so I think that's why quite a lot of my first year work was made by walking anywhere but the in the college (laughs) and um I made a lot of kind of interventions on the street and um you know lots of things like this but I had I had such lovely tutors as well I had Martino and Jürgen Bay so it was like because I also really respected them so much and I desperately you know wanted to have like a a deep design conversation. The pressure of when it was my tutorial <laughs> with one of them, I'd just be like, you know, um, I just kind of crumble. So it, it was, it was a, a bit of a, you know, a, a, an interesting time for a while. But I wouldn't regret or um, change it for the world because it definitely, through going through that, it really helped me to try and understand. And be encouraged and I had and to have the support of such lovely tutors that really tried very hard also to find different ways to kind of allow me to find my rhythm, that I became more confident in using colour and using pattern and using things that maybe I personally liked within my own life and wearing, but that I I wasn't sure why it needed or what was the need for it within my work. And I think if I hadn't have kind of gone back to like Stripped all the way down to the to the floor that I wouldn't have known a little bit more about what it is that me personally brings to design um, and what I what works for me to work work on. If that makes sense.
0: Yeah. No. Absolutely. I mean, can we can we take you back to um, your childhood? You grew up mm-hmm. in Shrewsbury. Yeah, your dad was uh, an architect. Your your mum was an occupational therapist. I think I'm right in saying. Yeah. Um, I mean, was it that documentary that made you think I want to be a designer, or had you already decided that design was for you? When did you become interested in it?
1: I definitely was. I was always going to do something creative. There was that was never going to be um, not on the cards. I think from a, from a very young age. I think. As I grew up, I became... I kind of started to understand a little bit more about different genres of of creativity. I think it was more when I was at secondary school. Um, I, had, I had a really nice DT tutor called Mr. Roberts, and he let me come and attend, like, the late or after-school classes he'd do for, like, the guys in a couple of years above that were, like, behind on their projects, and let me come in and, like, just play with pouring aluminium or making something in wood or making animatronics or so I think that was when I probably started to kind of become more interested in design as a as a direction within creativity that I would uh, do but I think for me the 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 reason why I, I was so kind of impressed by the the program on the RCA and and going okay that's where I need to go to to do this seriously was because I think in, in my hometown, it's, um, I think at school people kind of were maybe a bit dismissive over like that you could do that for a living, um, in some ways. And, um, I, I wasn't the most kind of normal looking kid as it was at that point either. Mm. So I think for me, um, I, I was definitely already, Falling in love with elements of of making and objects that people touch, not just look at, that that that, that you interact with, that have a conversation. Um, but I think the the program at the RCA really made me kind of understand how to like make that into a yeah. into a, a life, a career. Because um, I think I I think in Shrewsbury and in this area um, that there, there's amazing like crafts there and there's I, I used to do so many like, I used to like make slip for uh, an artist, uh, ceramicist Jan Stanley for hours on a Saturday. I, I used to um, be, you know, try and find any way in to kind of learn about making something with materials. But I think I, I knew that I, I wanted to work with craft, maybe not in the same traditional craft way as what I'd seen around where it was, you know, maybe making a certain bowl, but with with a fish emblem and making that, and that what, that's what you make and that's the only thing you produce. And I think now I can, I you know, I love working with people that have a passion for one particular thing and they, like, obsessively craft that, that thing. Um, but I think when you're young and when you're also trying to understand who you are and what makes you different from where you've come from and the environment you you're in I think I was nervous that that or not nervous but I kind of I think I already I also knew that I never wanted to be kind of limited only to one one material that I was really interested in you know everything and um and and so I think for me that, that, that kind of uh, getting access to like things like I recorded so many things from the TV uh, art programs and I'd collect all these magazines about, you know, these kind of things going on because I really wanted to kind of discover different ways of being creative. Um, outside of the creative that um, I'd been surrounded with I think from from a young age because I think you just get excited to learn new things and when you're in a small town um, it's inevitable I think that there are people that kind of uh, will always stay in the same area and love it and and feel a great connection to a place and there's always people that like We'll grow up one place and at some point there's the there's the there's the clock that ticks and goes next place and you're <laughs> so you kind of ready out, in other words. yeah i was i was i was definitely ready to kind of uh, extend my horizons to to other places and and to you know be creative in other ways and uh, and so i went to the to kingston university to do my foundation right um this is my kind of skirting around to get to London yeah yeah and um and that was again a really great course very materials based very makey and um and I think even still there I was still like into minds what direction I wanted to do and I remember uh Michelle who was one of the lovely tutors uh on that course for the design department and I think I was talking to her about not quite sure knowing what I wanted to do and she was like, get over yourself, you're a designer, go and design things. (laughs) And I was like, okay, okay, I'm going to go and design
0: things now. So Brighton.
1: Yeah, and then Brighton. um, uh, Again, I think uh, Michelle suggested Brighton over because I think I was still like monolog get to London, get to London. Mm. And I am so happy that I was suggested that Brighton would be um a good course for me. Um because it's it's so so material led there. And um and I I loved it. It was a course um half craft, half design, or the craft and the design course, which I think they're, they're various names for the courses during different years from WMCP to you know, um, but they were kind of combined for the first year and then you kind of chose either to specialize in two materials or to do design where you didn't specialize in a material but you do more design-led and I think I just was like I don't want to specialize in yeah. in any materials so I, I went down the design route but um, again kind of uh, would spend many hours in each workshop um, playing around with different materials and, and getting to learn techniques that maybe I wasn't meant to be learning yet but I, I was a bit impatient, so I just wanted to do everything.
0: So, what kind of things were you designing at Brighton?
1: I did a lot. I was really into ceramics in uh, in Brighton, um, to the point where I think at one point I was thinking about whether I would do the ceramic course right. at the RCA. Um, I, I got I just I really like molds, and I got really obsessed by this world between production and mass, and then hand and like, ceramics very contradictory as a material because on the one hand, it's so temperamental, and then on the other hand, if you can get all your dials and all your things in the right place, you can, you can, you can produce a volume. So I think I, I was very interested by that as a material and and we had a lovely visiting tutor, uh, Barnaby Barford.
0: Who's going to be in this series. Is
1: oh, oh. Right? oh yeah. I love it. Say hello for me. <laughs> I will. He's... uh, And he's lovely. And he he was brought in, I think, to tutor the second... Second years and the third years. And um, I think I just was so obsessively in the in the plaster room um, that he was very kind and he, he gave me a couple of um, tutorials on the things that I was trying to do and the mould making and I went and interned for him uh, over a summer.
0: So I'm quite intrigued that you were already thinking that your work was sitting somewhere between the industrial and the studio, I guess yeah. you would say, because it's you do occupy quite an interesting position in the design world and I think the design world has changed a bit whilst you came out of the, the Royal College. I mean, were you aware, when you came out with the the laminate marquetry pieces that you did, where your work would sit?
1: I think I had an... I had more of an intention of where it, it needed to sit right, um, for its narrative. Uh, so I think... I didn't... I didn't make the marquetry because I wanted to make gallery work. I made the marquetry laminate because it was the right work for the question that was interesting for that material. Mm. But then obviously you become aware that there for that to hold true about looking or re- re-examining the association somebody has with something, it you can't get away from we're also a world that, that does place value monetarily on things. So it didn't suit the context correctly for me to make something out of a material that's normally associated of being very mass and and throwaway, even though it's not really throwaway, but it's because, you know, we, we see it so so much used and then re-put it back in exactly the same world. So I knew for this work, and also because of the, the, the time it takes to do, mm. that it, it needed to be in more of a, a gallery or a... limited context for me it is important to kind of be slightly aware of what you're making and what's it for and i'm part of that you have to acknowledge that at some point it it needs yeah by its nature and the nature of you being able to kind of make a living of what you do it has to go somewhere Mm. and um and so i yeah i i knew for these types of works that i was doing that this almost slightly new market of uh, the crossover between art and design was was maybe going to be the place that it should sit
0: i mean i, I was intrigued uh, i was obviously i do a bit of research about people when i'm doing this and uh, there was a passage that i read from you that talked about and this is something that comes up a lot in these podcasts about your dyslexia yeah um and how it might have um Prompted you to look at pattern in a in a different way, and I, yeah. I, I rather like this. If you it's slightly long, but I'll, I'll read it anyway. And where you said, as a teenager, undiagnosed, I found my own way. You make sense of the written word, only being able to make sense of a sentence when broken down, highlighted in colours to regroup words into a form that I could more easily understand. Now I make my living sharing and seeing the world through colour and patterns extracted from the things that surround me. So is this where you feel that your interest in pattern? started?
1: I think it's definitely part of it. I mean, mm. I the only way I could make the words make sense is by having them in colours, mm. which would make a pattern that I could read. I'd say the letters there, they're a type of pattern. It's just... It's, a not, it's not... The rules of patterns of language is very different to the kind of repeating pattern languages that you have, but it's still forms and shapes. But for some reason, the way in which those forms and shapes are put together... I find much harder to understand unless I start putting it in, in a language I do understand better, which is colour. Um, and for some reason, different colours, when you highlight them on the page or with the letters, they kind of... They sit at different heights, and I think that then allows me to be able to move them into a pattern that maybe I can read. I. I I even today I was sending um uh some text back to Perry Jouye who I've been working with a lot um the last two years and um they'd sent me a text that they they wanted me to confirm and um and I sent it back and she was joking that I'd made even the text multicoloured because I'd like highlighted all these different bits because I was changing some elements to kind of uh Make it read better, and also I needed them to be aware of what I've changed because normally I have a, a very close friend of mine who's a writer will re, re-proofread most of the things for that I write before I send it to anybody else because it um, tends not to make a huge, still a huge amount of sense even if I spend a long time trying to make it correct. Um, so yeah, even today she was that uh, we were having a joke about the fact that I I turned a, a black and white page into <laughs> into
0: multicolours. So one of the things I was intrigued that the research turned up was that your mother collected fake fruit. Is this where your interest in super faking products and the, the materials and changing their meaning? Is this where this started?
1: It's definitely part part of it. I think, funnily, nearly everything that my mum uh, used to collect or, or silently collects inside a cupboard, um, I've kind of taken on and then, like expanded. So my mum collects uh, Bakelite and she likes plastic and there's a couple of books that she has that I used to love when I lived at home. Um, And so now that's kind of partly why I have this kind of strong obsession with uh, all things plastic fantastic. Um, And the same with the fake fruits. This was another thing that she was quite into and I've kind of taken over and... uh, and it, and gone bigger, and uh, and occasionally I buy my mum some new fake fruit, but a lot of the time I have to buy two, so one's, one goes to my house and one goes to her house. So, yeah, a lot, a lot of the things that my mum collected um, spurred me on, um, but my dad's not really into collecting. He doesn't like knickknacks, so I think it's also that thing that when my mum saw that I was, like, interested in, for example, she has had loads of glass jelly moulds, and I used them for a... For a project, and so she gave me all of her glass jelly molds because they were kind of liberated from a cupboard. So I think uh, I kind of fill my house with the collections. Maybe my mum has to keep in a in a smaller space
0: because you're you're an avid collector.
1: I like I like a good bit of stuff. Yes,
0: but certainly your relationship with color, certainly in your work, seems to have changed. I would suggest after you went to Mexico, which I think was a, a Award you won with the W Hotel Group, is that right?
1: It was um, an award for Design Mammy Basel. Design
0: Zaymami Basel.
1: And for that year, it was sponsored by the W Hotels. Ah, okay. And that's why they decided to do it in this residency format. We were asked to make work specifically about the city. And we had a brief of what's uh, uh, what's uh, global, local and local, global. And... Um, and so, for me, I found this very, I, I found this very interesting because it, it, it's similar in, in the way that I'm, I'm, I'm kind of half fascinated by production and half reviled by it, and this kind of in between um, these two kind of contradictions. And so, um, getting to go to Mexico for this award, and then the the fate of having um, the wonderful uh, Fernando lapos who um, I share a studio with now. It was uh, an intern of mine because he was still a student at that time. Was luckily going to be in Mexico City during this window to see his family. So I just had the most amazing kind of bumper pack mm. introduction to the to the city, to its colors, to its history, um, to its markets, and it blew my mind because it it was really the first um non kind of European visit I'd probably done. We didn't we, we went to Wales when I was uh, a child and maybe like um uh Italy, but not very much. We mainly went to Wales. <laughs> um which is lovely and I love Wales and uh and uh I you know um but I think it was really the first time that I'd really experienced being in a whole environment that is set on a completely different set of rules especially in relation to colour than um, in, in Europe and I, I think at that point I'd for example done a residency in Venice which I'd got very interested by because that also is a, is a city that has a very particular colour palette it's, it's, it's wet and very kind of gradiated in tone but it's very earthy and um, it, it has this very particular tone to it But Mexico was just like something on steroids because the default is like way more extreme than like the most extreme traditionally you'd maybe find within the kind of European and and the kind of color sensibilities that I'd been kind of surrounded with.
0: So how's that affected your work since?
1: Um, I, I think you can see nearly every piece of work that I made from that time of going to be in Mexico was heavily influenced. So I've done quite a series of works, um, from the, um, the, um, uh, a piece I did first with, for Quadvat, uh, with a lovely, uh, embroiderer Laura Lees. And we made this one off piece, uh, which then I worked with Moreau. So, um, uh, uh last, no, not last year, the year before, um, when we did, like, a whole showroom um, mm. called Monomania Mexico and um, was about this kind of love affair that I had with uh, with the colours of Mexico and, in particular, this one building called the New Basilica of the Lady of Guadalupe, which has the most beautiful stained glass windows.
0: It's quite a brutalist building. Isn't yeah, it, it's super brutalist. Yeah. It's
1: like a brutalist spaceship. Um, it's amazing. <laughs> I, I went back to it um, last... Last year, um, with uh, with Danai, who works with me in my studio, and um, I just still was wanting to lick it. It's so amazing as a as a thing, as a space, as a, a just the, yeah. It's still it's just beautiful. All the stained glass windows are um, a mix of like cast glass um, pyramids and wiggles and um, I'd never seen stained glass that was that was this mix of being put together from components like you normally think of mm-hmm. stained glass but then also three dimensional at the same time and so every angle you would kind of cuz this the church is like this big round spaceship kind of if you imagine it big copper kind of trumpet roof and so every time you kind of walk around it you, you the you see the glass in different angles and so you get a completely different kind of pattern building. So I kind of walked and walked around this one um, church sketching and drawing the stained glass from all different angles um, to create a pattern. And um, so I've gone back and forth to this kind of Guadalupe pattern world that I created specifically about this church for several projects. And, and so for the Morosa show, we kind of... Um, Literally filled the whole showroom just based on that one um, obsession.
0: Because your interest is quite intriguing. Because, on one hand, I've seen you talk about how you love brutalist architecture, yeah. so a lot of con- concrete, grey. On the other hand, the other influences you, you talk about are Ettore Sotsas, uh, Eduardo Palazzo, you know, both kind of colourful palazzo. Mm. People will know, I guess, most from Tottenham Court Road, the mosaics there. So, you're bringing these two influences together.
1: Yes and no, but I think if you look at quite a lot of brutalist architecture has this kind of bonkers, crazy town when it comes to its windows, or there's elements within the brutalism that because that's so aggressive in one direction, it can handle a quite hardcore colour partner. Mm. So in quite a lot of the kind of brutalist style, especially churches that I've been to, they've had the most bonker's windows and it, that combination between that quite hard uh, heavy um concretey aesthetic has a really interesting relationship with 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 being an offset for this kind of intense color mm. um i think what connects or what the things that i connect to with with uh, uh Palazzi and, um uh, and success is also because they were i really loved their ability to be within two worlds at the same time so success you know with like things like the valentine typewriter made incredibly for its period of time and and uh and and these kind of things amazingly beautiful mm. bonkers but for what it needed to do practical typewriter um but then he'd also make like you know unashamedly um, uh, n- non-super-functional if you're looking at a function of making a vase that a flower goes into, things with Vanini, for example, because it was about making it suit the function of that material and what that specialism did. And what I love about um, Palazzi is he, he also he's a fine artist but the mediums he worked with were quite often things like screen screen printing and things that were seen as from mass industry and not fine art mm. but work with them in this beauty of really understanding how that that process works and doing multi layers and the quality of of his work in that medium i think so i think for both both of them i I respect a lot because, of course, I like that they go quite crazy town with their pattern and colour, but it's it's their ability to respect the material or the industry that they're working particularly for, but still, it's unashamedly from them, but it never feels like their their work is compromising, in either compromising what they're bringing to the table or disrespecting what they're playing with, mm. and so I think, for me, that's... That, that's something that I try very hard to try and find the right the right way of balancing what I'm bringing but also what's what's there from a material or a way of producing mm. if that makes sense
0: Yeah no it doesn't in some ways I mean you, you've kind of aped the sotsAS model I mean you're not working for Olivetti admittedly but but you're working with significant Italian manufacturers, Moroso being one for instance, but also working with these artisans and you're very careful it seems to me to give credit. For the work you 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 do with some of these artisans, that's important to you. Yes,
1: it's that that's that's been like a um, a key cornerstone to what I do, and I think it's that's been in there from I think Martino Gamper uh, and and Jurgen when we were at the RCA, we we were always very, it was you, you always kind of respected who you were working with, and you acknowledge that. And when I did my first residency outside of the RCA that Martina was on the, the board uh, of, and um, and then this led to another one working with artisans, these ones in particular were about making sure you credit the artisan and that it was work would be double credited. Right. Because um, often so, the art world
0: in particular doesn't yeah. go down that route, right?
1: I think it's, it's always difficult because on the one hand, you, you know, you, you always need to find the right way that you can make sure that you don't give away all your secrets. Um, but I think for certain types of work and when you do something that's so, um, so intrinsic to your hand and their hand, I, I don't, I, I want like, for example, Pietro I met him through the second residency I did in, uh, in Italy. Uh, in Vincenza, and um, I love working with him, and he's so sweet and lovely, and his family are awesome. And I, I, why wouldn't I want to credit and make sure that if people want to do experimental pyrex, that they know that he's there, and that you know, because I also want him to um, be able to profit and and uh, get something from from the work that we we do together. Yeah. Um, so that was quite
0: interesting, the, the, the Pyrex work yeah. that you've done. Um, I mean, was that just fluke? There seems to be a kitchen theme going on in your I own know, early you you, I I've, know.
1: I've, I've left the, the ladies' kitchen and taken it all out in the <laughs> man's uh, design world a little bit. Um, I think, yeah, I think for, for here, because most of our associations in the UK is, is science wear and kitchenware for uh, Pyrex. Now it's a bit different because suddenly Pyrex has been a lot in uh, in a popular uh, kind of design a bit more. So it's kind of, it's associations are maybe more in flux. But when I started working with it, I really only knew it from this kind of mm. uh, uh, world. And I think I quite, li- I quite like that about working with materials that have quite set connotations or, or associations and... Um, and yeah, maybe I will. I will come across another another kitchen uh, staple from the fifties <laughs> and start liberating it out out of it, uh, its uh, confinements.
0: Can we talk about your look, Bethan? Yes, it comes. You can. Up in, it comes. It comes up in all the, all the pieces that are always written about you. And there's a lovely quote of yours which I like, which where you describe yourself as a uh, buckaroo meets Russian doll.
1: That would be that would be my look. Yes,
0: <laughs> the way you dress uh, and the work you produce are kind of very much interlinked. It seemed to me. Um, when did this style develop? Were you walking about like this in Shrewsbury as a as a teenager, or when when did it when did it begin to to take seed?
1: I was definitely walking around in Shrewsbury in an equally probably very uh, silly and uh, you know odd outfit, but at that point in time, it was very rational and correct for me. In the same way that I may change my my look in a two years and and think that I look ridiculous now, but i so I definitely was experimenting with dressing up even from i think from about year eight in secondary school, I kind of um the kind of penny dropped that um people were gonna tease me whatever, so I might as well kind of enjoy it and um and then i I think I started you know making lots of there was of that very 90s hairstyle of like small butterfly clips that you would as a as a as a girl or a boy with long hair you would kind of twist it back and make like a little array so i i kind of made a lot of my own versions of these from like with pencil sharpeners and then i'd kind of sharpen my own pencil In my hair, and um, you know, really sensible things for not getting pencil sharpeners in your
0: hair. Yeah, well, I made
1: clips. Oh, I see. With pencil sharpener stuck on them, so then you could like sharpen a pencil. (laughs) So I I was very much into this kind of halo array of uh, headgear. So
0: your response to being teased was just to go even further, more extreme. Which is quite a brave thing to do. A bit, yeah, because
1: there was It it was going to happen regardless, so I might as well just. Find it liberating and be able to do what I want rather than worry.
0: Because you were different, or?
1: Um, I mean, I don't think it. I, I think I was, you know, very crafty person. So I don't think it helped that, you know, people would. In, in my break times, I'd be like in the art room making charcoal drawings of naked ladies because I was really into Dagar and I had no problem with drawing naked ladies. But, you know, at school, young kids are. Not particularly nice, and they'd, you know, they'd be calling me, you know, lesbian '60s throwback, and I, I'd kind of be what in that sentence is not a good thing. They're all like, '60s (laughs) are good, lesbians can be cool, throwback, I like vintage, you know.' So I just, I think, uh, you know, I kind of um, was already kind of um, always making stuff and always kind of interested in doing that, and and so I you know, being teased a bit was kind of already in the, in the package. And I had a lovely mum who would like help me uh, or sew me dresses. So I think she, you had to make your own, you know, summer dress or you were allowed to make your own summer dresses. So, you know, I, I instructed my mum to make me one that looked like a giant, you know, doll dress and, um with big buttons and, you know, bless, bless my mum. She made it for me, you know, but it obviously doesn't necessarily go right down well with a whole Audience of uh, of of young children, <laughs> um, but uh, yeah. So it was, uh, I, yeah. It, it was something that I found uh, solace in uh, that way of expressing myself, and um, and so I I I it was very kind of hair focused. I think at school mainly because if I tried to go anywhere here, I was. Uh, on my face, I was made to wash it off, um, which I think was once or twice. And, um, and uh, yeah, so then I was very, I think I started wearing a lot of kind of vintage 1960s dresses. I had a, like a velour, uh, psychedelic purple catsuit that I was quite into for quite, quite a long time until I think it completely kind of disintegrated. <laughs> um, so I definitely was dressing up... Uh, in my hometown and I think when I moved to Brighton there was quite a strong kind of um, not dress up dress up scene but it, it was much more kind of open mm. to people having different styles and different aesthetics and uh, then definitely when I moved to London uh, and and the, I was in London for like a year before um, before I started at the RCA and there was um, a great kind of uh, club culture subculture going on at that time it was very dress up focused, so then I really felt um, uh, you know i was uh, I was at home with the clowns and i I became more extravagant in that window with some of the makeup stuff um, but it's definitely something that i've been doing more or less f- for a long time
0: and can you i mean you have such a strong identity can you if you decide do you think you can just change it and would the work change with your look if you changed?
1: I think there are, you do, you, if you've known me kind of long enough, like my friend, my friend Liz, who I mentioned earlier, um, who's the writer that, that has been helping me many, for many, many years, um, uh, with, with my written words, she remarks that there is quite a big change between the, the look that she knew from when I was in Brighton to Mm. the look I have now. And I think definitely when I'm, gearing up or starting to digest or understand a new colour palette or I'm wanting to move on to a new colour palette, now I often will find that I'm wearing that palette or I'm kind of playing with it in, in, because it's in a way it's much safer on me. If I do it wrong for a day, like maybe someone gets a not great picture of a look that's a bit terrible, but it, at least I'm learning something from it. Um, whereas if I use like a new colour palette straight on a piece of work, if I, if I sometimes if I haven't been able to sit with colours or proportions of colours f- for a while, I'm, it's difficult to know whether it's it's like a good palette or it's just a, a kind of an in between palette that you you play around with before you get to like a good one. And uh, so yeah, definitely my dressing up as I've as I've grown older and I've been more comfortable with the connection between my work and my dress up has become more mixed. I think when I was a student in Brighton, I I kind of didn't like that people automatically thought that I was a fashion designer um, because of being a dress up. And, and yes, wearing a synthetic tutu in a workshop welding was something that I was informed was not was not going to work out so well, and uh, I, the technicians in Brighton even like gave me some bright orange dungarees in a, in a kind of trade off to try and uh, not have me go up in flames <laughs> um, you know it's not necessarily the that you know works together all the time, but I think when now i 'm much more comfortable in this is what I do, and i like to cross over in different mediums, and I think when you're younger and you're trying to really understand what it is that you you want to do, you kind of you can be a bit more sensitive about when people automatically want to put you in a, a category because of something that's as personal as the way you dress, if you mm. get what I mean. Mm. So um, I'm I, I I'm less I'm less bothered by people having an opinion about it than maybe I was um, in the past.
0: Mm. What does the future hold? You're about to get on a plane. We just caught you before you get on a plane to Shanghai. Right?
1: Yes, yes. I'm off to Shanghai to hang out with my tree um, again.
0: Your tree is the Perrier-Jouet Yes, I've
1: made this um, large uh, sculptural piece for Perrier-Jouet and um, it's... it's there's four of them now and they're travelling around different parts of the world um, celebrating the, the world of Champagne and... Uh, exactly. And occasionally, um, they, they ask if I, I will go and be with the tree to do, um, you know, conversations or um, uh, kind of uh, meet and greets. And uh, I love traveling and going to different countries, so most of the time I'm going to say yes because, uh, I, you know, I, I love to get to experience different places. And um, I'm really proud of that project. And it was, it was a lot of work. It was a big ask to, to make something so big. I'd not made... Um, a single kind of uh, sculptural piece that size before. Um, So, yeah, I'm very, I'm very, I'm still, uh, I'm still very close to that piece. So I'm, uh, yeah, I, I like going and seeing it because I actually haven't seen it a huge amount of time because we kind of built it and then it went off traveling. And then when we build another one, it goes off straight away. So sometimes it's quite nice to be able to have a bit of time with something because you can start to kind of, you know, Understand what's working, what's not in terms of then what language you can take forward to another project and um, yeah
0: Anything else you can tell us? Uh,
1: other things, <laughs> other things uh, There will be more things, okay, trust me um, and for sure around Salone, which is the you know the the date that which happens every year yeah. in April in Milan So I for sure will be making some new pieces with Nilofar Gallery and um, what, I don't know, right now, and uh, maybe a few other things uh, in other places, but uh, yeah, there'll be more coming, but uh, let me first finish what I've got. Okay,
0: well, I'm glad to hear it. Thank you so much for your time, Beth. No worries. I really appreciate it. Thank you. And to learn more about Bethan's work, go to bethanlaurawood.com. There are images from the interviews as well as little films and other things on my Instagram page, Grant on Design. If you've enjoyed listening and want to see this podcast flourish, then please rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this from and go to my Patreon page and make a pledge. You can find that at patreon.com forward slash material matters. You'll be helping take the message of the importance of materials, skill, craft, and design to a whole new audience. Thanks very much for listening.